Intentions, presented by BHDP, where we discuss trends in architectural and interior design and the competing priorities or tensions that arise from integrating new ideas into existing organizations, enterprises, and institutions. This episode is the conclusion of our series on site selection with Tom Balonic of Messer Construction and Michael Verdeer of BHDP. We talk about specifics of land criteria search, budget, and scheduling, and the tensions that impact them. If you enjoy what you hear, we encourage you to rate, subscribe, and give us a review. Let's pick back up where we left off. Land search criteria, LSC. Tell me more about that. What are the things that you guys look for as the experts? So you've, how long have you been doing site selection, Tom? Well, I've, I've been at Messer for about seven years and in, in functioning in a business development and segment leadership role. Prior to that, I had practiced real estate for about seven years full time. But uh, I think what it comes down to is translating the owner's program into something that's tangible and then going out and looking for sites that meet those criteria and then performing due diligence on those sites to say, based on the criteria that we know, does this site make sense? In many cases, we can eliminate sites pretty quickly from a cost standpoint, from a schedule standpoint. I think some of the, the things that are critical when you when you think through the the land search criteria you set forth the criteria and again there is other criteria that fit into there not just design criteria right there are business type need criteria that fit there you know can you attract the talent that you want is it in the geographic area that you need is it close to rail or or uh, is it close to an airport is it within a fixed geographic area from your client base so those are certainly important criteria that are not necessarily directly related to design that are in the equation that your site selection and real estate folks are keeping their eye on but we're certainly evaluating it from a design standpoint yeah. and from a cost and infrastructure and schedule standpoint point. Maybe a client bought a site because it had all the land they thought they needed and it was cheap, but then they come to find out that it doesn't have the infrastructure to support the site or they can't get people to go there to work in the new building. There are just a lot of criteria. Places that people want to live in the first place. Well, absolutely. <laughs> Quality of life. Those things are very important in that process. We tend to focus right on the construction cost and schedule and subcontractor and is the soil adequate? Are the utilities mm -hmm. adequate? What is it going to cost to get them there? And we look at it from a design standpoint, but those more holistic things are certainly critically important, and that's where the real estate folks and site selection folks, they have their finger on the pulse of that piece of it, but we're working yeah. in conjunction with them to create a successful project, along with yeah. the legal team who's watching the legal side of things for, right. for the mm -hmm. client. I just want to add, you know, we were ta talking a little bit about developing regions or countries where owners might be expanding. There's other other land search criteria that you might not think about, at least I didn't until I until, you know working in Africa. I mean, you know, is there health care? Schools. Uh, is there shopping? You know, when, when a spouse is, is at work, what's the other spouse doing? Oh, you got to go to the movies, shopping, things like this. Those play into the land search criteria in developing regions. Have you ever had anything surprise you that maybe you hadn't thought of or you just been doing it so long you know it all? <laughs> uh, you know, yeah, I'm so good at this. Some of the surprising things. Uh, I, I walked out on a site one time. It had a very wooded tree line. I came around the corner and a bald eagle came swooping down mm. out of the woods past oh, wow. us. We're immediately going, are we going to cut down a tree that's got a bald yeah. eagle nest in it? Yeah. You know, what, what are the implications of this? And certainly I've been out on sites that have streams and, and getting into wetland issues and you get into sometimes Army Corps of Engineers has jurisdiction over site, so that opens oh. up another can of worms to where you, these are things that 
as you're evaluating a site, you need your experts saying, hey, this is where this could go and this is what this could cost and this is how long it could take, so that you're making decisions with your eyes wide open about these sites yeah. early on. And you know, some, some of these are not super complicated. They're easy criteria to eliminate a site. We look at a couple things, we say, it doesn't have this, it can't do that, it's, it's, there's risk there, okay, let's move on to the next one. It's not that these are necessarily long and drawn out, but when you get it narrowed down to sites that you really think will work, then you start to dig in a little deeper on what you think the site is, is worth in terms yeah. of paying for it and, and being mm -hmm. able to develop the project there. Yeah. So how many sites do you usually go out and get when you're doing, like once you have your criteria, you know what you're looking for. Is there like a standard, we only look at five, or have you ever had to look at <laughs> Well, that's like really 25? the real estate people that are, yeah. that are driving that train. Yeah. They're the ones that are identifying potential sites, you know, whether that is through some of the real estate services, whether it's through local, I mean, site selection companies will often engage local real estate folks, or some of them are, are that, that they engage are commercial real estate folks. They're the ones out there working either directly to find these sites or through economic development local economic development saying, hey, we need a site that'll accommodate a 200,000 square foot building with 35 foot clear height and 25,000 square foot office. And so economic development gets engaged at that point to say, hey, I think I've got something, or they put out a, a search criteria at the state level and they get sites back and they, they weed through those. And there's some interesting conversations around that I've had with site selectors recently where we send these requests out to, to folks and sometimes they fill half the information in. And, oh. you know, it's hard for us to spend a lot of time and energy on a particular site when we only have half the information and they can get eliminated pretty quickly. So they typically run that process and then they bring us in to say, hey, can you, can you look at this site or can you look at that site or we've narrowed it to these one or two or three sites. Can you give us a little deeper look at these? But a lot of the upfront programming things are the things that are driving whether a site will work or not. Sure. And Michael said, and mentioned it earlier, just knowing how many acres it takes to fit your master plan on, search, that sets a criteria for the real estate and site selection people to say, hey, we need 150 acres or 100 acres versus spinning your wheels looking at 75 acre parcels that aren't gonna work or are gonna cause you to make a compromise that you really don't wanna make. Yeah. Part of this you wrote at the beginning, the game is lost and won in site selection, right? So you're talking about picking land, bringing um, someone who has an expertise in construction, maybe some high order magnitude of cost type of knowledge. What's the advantage of bringing design in that early? It comes back to making sure you can meet the long-term business need for a particular company. Uh, if you don't, you know, obviously if you don't buy the right land, you don't design the right building, you're not gonna meet that business need. There's risk in overbuilding increased capital cost, longer construction duration, depreciation, increased operating cost, all that has a direct impact on the cost of the products that are going out the door. So your margins are lower. On the flip side, there's risk in underbuilding. You can't ship the business. You can't deliver the capacity demand that you have. You might have to import product. You might have to expand your, your operations earlier than you had expected. And so that might disrupt ongoing production operations. Those are why you should do that upfront, proper business and capacity planning. Oftentimes clients think of their space needs in terms of what they have now. 
And okay. oftentimes getting a team like Michael's involved early in the process, perhaps they may be used to, to operating in 50,000 square feet of office and 200,000 feet of manufacturing. But that 200,000 feet of manufacturing represents four expansions that were cobbed onto a building <laughs> in a way that's highly inefficient. And the way their yeah. production is laid out is inefficient. Yeah. So they say to themselves, well, I have 200,000 feet today. I want to expand, so I need 270,000 feet. But by having a team involved that can look at the layout of the production, you may not need that much. It may yeah. be more of a question of you have a blank slate now. And if you lay this out in the most efficient way, whether it's production space, office mm -hmm. space, what have you, you may not meet, need as much space as you think you need. Yeah. And as Michael said, heating and cooling and ensuring more space than what you need is costly. Right. So oftentimes clients can be blind to the fact that they're spread over multiple locations. When you think about uh, an overall plan for what you need, sometimes you, you add up, hey, we're, we're here, we're, we're at location A and B and location C, and we need to add up the square footage of those because we're going to consolidate. The better way to think about that is to say, we need a plan that outlines our overall needs not necessarily looking at the square footage you occupy at these various sites for office manufacturing, what have you. Take a look at what the overall plan is yeah. to consolidate those things and then come up with a strategy to execute uh, to build one facility because oftentimes the inefficiencies of being spread in multiple locations means you need considerably less square footage than you think you need. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I mean, taking the time to put together, as you said, Tom, a program of requirements across three sites, they might have duplicate labs, duplicate workshops duplicate utilities, cafeterias, things like that. If they consolidate to one location, obviously they don't need three cafeterias or you know three X the number of labs and things like that. Taking all that into consideration can help them even reduce overall operating cost. Yeah, the the, I do a lot of work with the GSA, which is the landlord for the government, mm -hmm. and there was an executive order to reduce the government footprint a few years ago. So we help a lot with that, and we found that to be true even in corporate workplace environments mm -hmm. where you have one tenant in six buildings with three different leases, and they think that they're not going to have enough space if they consolidate but they don't realize that they're operating at 300 square feet per person when they really only need 170 mm. because suddenly you don't have 45 different break rooms and all of the support functions mm -hmm. that come with having those different locations plus utilities yeah. alone collapsing extraneous leases and bringing all the children home yeah. to roost. Maintaining three properties. Yeah, they're like, but it costs us $2 yeah. million dollars a floor. Yeah, but you're paying $10 million mm -hmm. on one building and lease. That's five floors you could renovate now. Yeah. You I know. always think about just the movement of materials in a facility like that in three physically separate locations. Uh, a lot of times owners are producing component at the component level. So they'll produce components at one facility, transport them across town, only to add value to it with uh, additional assembly. So think about, you know, if they're consolidated in one location, there's, there's savings optimization associated with that as well. I've said, I think, a couple of times capacity master planning. What that is, is really understanding your client, the volume of products they're going to produce year on year. Year one, they make 100,000 stat cases of something. Year two, it goes to 200,000. But with that, how much equipment does it take to produce 
the volumes of those products year on year. And hopefully that trajectory is going up, not down. Also asking the right questions around, is there going to be uh, new products or new business development that needs to be considered in there? And so once we have a really good understanding of what the volumes are and the, the numbers of, of equipment, whether it's uh, converting lines, packing lines, whatever that might be, we start to lay that out in a logical way. We do these equipment general arrangements, I call them. We're basically taking that capacity master plan, those equipment layouts with considerations of how material gets in, gets to the lines, right. material comes away from the lines, maintaining, doing changeovers and things like that. And we're shrink wrapping a facility around it. So we're looking at the near term as well as the long term capacity master plan. Yeah. Uh, as my volume goes up, I need more raw materials. So maybe my warehouse needs to get bigger. How am I going to store that material? As the finished product comes off the end, I got to store it. Am I direct shipping or not? You know, it's asking all these proper questions and doing it with the mindset of the long-term capacity plan. That becomes the land search criteria, a part of it. And then I pull that back into a phasing, phase one, phase two, phase three, to ensure that we're respecting what I call the capital affordable limit on a project for an owner. And because the idea is that if you create a plan, even if you're not gonna do it now, yeah. You're ready for it if it happens, but that also informs future decisions. Like if you need to increase your infrastructure, yeah. you know where not to put it. That's exactly right. You've yeah. got this long-term master plan and it becomes this lighthouse or this beacon that a site manager should follow. You know, if there's an urgent need for additional chilled water capacity or something on the site, you don't go and put a chiller in a location where, hey, based on our master plan, that's our future expansion for increased production. You don't make those short-term decisions right, that become yeah. barriers to long-term growth. And you have your real estate folks at the table too who are looking at these things saying, in the budget, the, the maximum affordable budget right now, we don't have that extra 25 acres we need, but mm -hmm. the real estate folks are putting an option together so that when you do need it, or a first right of refusal, when you do need it, yeah. You can acquire it, or in the case of a lease, that you need only so much space now, but what about when you need to expand, making sure the right mechanisms are in place in that lease so that you can expand into that space when you need it. So that's how it comes full circle of the design team, the construction folks at the table, the real estate folks at the table, the legal folks at the table to ensure that you're being protected and getting what you need and not making compromises from beginning to end. And it's, it's more when you say at the table, in my mind, it's better to have all those people in the room at the same time than to try and play telephone right. where you're getting your bits of information and then yeah. trying to bring it back because that is a cost of schedule as far as making decisions. Well, I mean, <laughs> I just met with a client last week and, and they were talking about how their project was behind schedule. They, mm -hmm. they needed to change firms, design build firms. Oh, wow. They were interviewing us. In the meeting, I said, for every month you, you, you can't run production, what does it cost you? And they said three to four million dollars. That's your cost of schedule for every month this thing's delivered late. In that case, it's three to four million dollars. So when you start to talk about getting a hold of things in the planning stage, being able to deliver a project a month earlier or two months earlier by going through this process, we talked earlier about money saved, right? Focusing on the right numbers, not the quarter percent right. uh, fee that someone's charging you down the road, the how much can I make if I'm open a month earlier, if I streamline this process. Ah, so bringing people to the table would, could help you on the back end get some of that money back. Okay. So you have an idea in your head of when the project should start and when it should end, right? And they have plugged in some rough idea of what the design duration is. But there are some very defined placeholders in the schedule for planning and zoning. 
And if you miss one of those deadlines, you may miss a two and a two month window. There could be 45 days uh, filing deadlines for planning commission. Oh, wow. So you got to start that right to left schedule and the owner needs to be informed of that. That's part of the due diligence, you know, it's understanding planning, zoning, uh, all the building regulations, permit requirements. When you're working with an owner to define land search criteria, hopefully you're educating them along the way about all of these type of things as well. So one of the things that you wrote in the article was that you said arriving on a site, you've got to be the bearer of bad news mm -hmm. because it's within minutes, you have the ability to find unknown problems to the client that could cost thousands or sometimes millions of dollars to fix. Do you have an example of arriving being like, oh, yeah, no. Yeah, so <laughs> yeah, there was a site actually, uh, BHDP brought us in on a project a while back and went out to the site and walked around and they said, hey, we're, our offer goes in tomorrow for the building. And I said, well, how much are you offering? And I figured that number in my head and then I looked at the building and how many square feet there were, used some rule of thumbs to kind of square up how much we thought the office renovation was gonna cost. And then the uh, manufacturing addition, added those numbers up in my head and said, this is way more expensive than buying a piece of dirt and building a building. Wow. Yeah, and there was a lot of there was a lot of repairs that were needed. I remember that, that job, Tom. I mean, uh, the building had been unoccupied for many years. It was leaking. The mechanical systems were old. They hadn't been maintained. And I think these are the things that the owner didn't really recognize or didn't see. So what would prompt an owner to do that? Is it a lack of understanding or what's the... Well, I think sometimes they get in a hurry and they, yeah. they want to move quickly and they think that an existing building is the quickest way to do that. They also sometimes are looking at budget thinking an existing building is going to be less costly. Right. But that's not necessarily true. And, and you also sometimes you get hyper-focused on a particular location, mm -hmm. but the challenge is, is that there's a whole lot of due diligence that needs to go on with these buildings and these properties. And, and I think the other key point of the article is, is that you want to have these experts on board and many people fear bringing them on board because they think that they're, that they need to create competition. They need to create competition between architects and, and construction managers and, and other folks along the way because that's how they get the best deal. But the reality of it is, is that they win and lose money, millions of dollars many times, way before they ever get to that point. So the quarter percent they're worrying about trying to get out of the contractor or out of the architect, they lost hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars before they ever got there by not having their expertise yeah. at the table early on in the process. Yeah. I, I agree. I mean, I, I think there's a lot of reasons why owners don't engage professionals at the beginning of a, of a land search or a property search. Some of it is that these are big investments, and, and a lot of customers we work with don't do it every day. They don't have the internal staff to, to guide them, and sometimes it's just you don't know what you don't know. And I think that's part of why Tom wrote the article, is really to try to help uh, businesses that are attempting to, to engage on a land search or a building acquisition. So see, I like old cars, and when I was young, I wanted to have a project car, and I learned early on that if um, you can put your hand through a hole in the chassis, that's not a good one. Yeah. But I learned. It looked really great from far away. Learned yeah. the difference between a you know 100-foot paint job and a, a close-up thing. Yeah. So that might be the same. They don't know what details to look at when they're looking at sites. I mean, everyone has their area of expertise. And so when you talk about the real estate folks, they have a, a lot of resources and analytics around the site and what you should pay for it and what have you. Our expertise is, especially from a design standpoint, uh, you know, y you have to understand whether you can build what you want there and not just for today, 
but down the road. You need to be able to expand in a way that makes sense for your business. Yeah. You need to be able to turn trucks around in a way that makes sense for your business. And you need to know what it costs, and you need to know how long it's going to take to build. Some of these corporate real estate folks want predictability. So you get involved in a project, and they could spend $40 million on it if they needed to, but they said it was going to cost 30 Right. And in the end, it may end up costing something, you know, more than 30 or less than 40. But it was the fact that they had to go back to corporate and say, hand another $5 million. Answer a lot of questions. And answer <laughs> a lot of questions, whereas having experts involved at the beginning, yeah. those things become much more predictable. And depending on, like I said, the business case, whether it was 32 million or 40 didn't necessarily matter. But what mattered is how you went about and when you had the information. Other times, that difference is significant to whether the business makes sense, whether the move makes sense for the client. So, so where do your numbers come from? Like, how do you know? Historical information of projects, similar projects we've performed. Oftentimes we're talking to the key subcontractors. Sometimes it's work we self-perform. So we have a pretty good gauge on what things cost. Oftentimes people focus on the wrong numbers. How much am I going to pay or how much can I get out of uh, a contractor or a designer or a subcontractor by yeah. creating this competition? But that competition is created so late in the game that significantly more money is lost before you ever got there. Yeah, because you were talking about competition is usually quarter of a percentage. You yeah. Know, it's like a, a nominal almost. I think it's important to point out, too, that it's not about eliminating competition um, for a construction manager or a design builder or a design firm. Mm -hmm. it, it's important to bring key companies to the table, qualified companies to the table that can perform this work and interview them and find out what their expertise is and then make a selection, a value-based selection about who best meets your needs and who can best execute the project. Um, no one's saying just hand the project to somebody. Bring in key experts in, in each field and say, help me understand why you're the best solution for our company. Give me a rough idea of your cost structure to perform this work. You do have some upfront competition to say, uh, but it's value-based, to say, yes, I'm gonna talk to experts, I'm gonna make a decision based on their ability to help me through this process and deliver this project successfully. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing wrong with negotiating those things up front, but you will get the most out of them if you commit early and all of their good ideas are shared from the beginning of the project to the end and they're working as a team with all of the other players at the table because they're guaranteed the project if it goes forward. Yeah. Sometimes the project doesn't go forward, but as a contractor, I'm much more comfortable being committed to a project and helping the client every way I can. And if the end result is, is it doesn't make sense to do the project or it doesn't make sense to do it today, that's okay. What I don't want to do is spend 60000 or $100,000 for a one in five shot yeah. at a project. That's costly to me. Sure. Spending money to help a client along the way uh, to get to a decision is money well spent for us, and it's, it's a relationship builder. But it also gives you the opportunity when we talk about what's important to you as a client. As you hire a construction manager or design builder early in the process and you say things like economic inclusion is important to us, you can employ a strategy early on in the process to invite those types of contractors to the table to participate early in the design and early in the package process to ensure that you meet those goals versus having a project completely designed and then saying, okay, now I'm gonna go out to the market and I'm gonna hope and, and pray that I can find qualified uh, woman-owned minority contractors to bid on this project. If that's important to you, 
you as a client, then there's a strategy that can be employed very early on to ensure success for something like that. Is that what you mean by economic inclusion, like minority-owned businesses or things like that? Or yeah, so, so yes, so it's sure ensuring that we, you know, and many of our clients, it's very important to them that we have a diverse group of subcontractors and workforce on mm -hmm. the job site, oftentimes reflective of the demographics of the particular area that we're working. So yes, that is something that is very common for us to be asked to do in a project, and we can yield the best results when things like that are discussed early on in the, in the project. Now, for Messer, whether or not that is a goal of the owner, we have our own goals internally for the company that we set for uh, economic inclusion on our particular projects, and, and we've been very successful. Uh, so this is, this all sounds like you know understanding local zoning codes and things, but we talked about a global example of not just having the right talent to come to the site, but having the right talent to build the site in the first place. You know, when I think about this, it's not just for North America, you know, the importance of having the right team there. It's for it's outside North America, developing regions, the risks are, are much greater. I mean, I worked in Africa for six years as the program manager. Uh, risk was very high. Just being able to get the right craft people to the site each day, we had to build a life camp. So there's costs that that uh, you don't typically think about, you know, when you're doing a project in North America or developed regions. And so by having experts involved, we knew that we had to build this life camp and operate it for the 18 months during construction. I did exactly what Tom is saying, engage the right people, the right experts up front. We did that, you know, and all along the way as we're doing was we're searching for land or we're looking for the right does design team or construction firms we're asking lots and lots of questions another important point i think is worth interjecting into this when we talk about competition yeah is that there is an open book arrangement when we typically work as a cm or a design builder there's competition we win a project but most of those fee structures are open book and, and negotiated so for the client who says i don't know that i necessarily am comfortable pulling the trigger up front how do i know what they're going to charge me those are shared throughout the process with the client to see yeah. just exactly they know exactly from beginning to end what they're paying for the service and what they're yeah. paying for the involvement of the cm or the design builder or the design team or the staff that's yeah. involved in pre construction or building the job and what have you. So there's a, a much higher level of transparency yeah, when you work under that arrangement. Yeah, that I builds agree. trust. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. If you're doing design, bid, build, you're getting a lump sum proposal. The owner doesn't necessarily know all the details in there. Right. There are times when a design is really, really solid and someone comes along with a value engineering idea that absolutely kills the design. Yeah, but yet you're that far down the road, and if a project has got budget issues, yeah. people start coming in and hacking things up mm -hmm. that really impact the design. Uh, on All that glass is beautiful, but it'd be cheaper if it were brick. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? There's a good example, yeah. right? But the people who are making the budget decisions aren't designers, right? Yeah. And so what you can end up with in the end is those type of compromises we talked about earlier that you really don't want to make, and you may not have had to make had you had the, the cost experts at the table early on. Yeah, I think it's that's exactly right. I mean, I think it's important to have somebody that's there that can do the professional budgeting with you, like I said earlier, so you don't have those 11th hour value engineering sessions with no, which no one enjoys. Right. Yeah. I've seen historically a lot of times in, in workplace, whenever something gets value engineered, it's usually the finishes get wiped early on. But I've also seen other people start to go way more granular on their budgets where they may 
make line items for specific, like, so this is the furniture budget, this is the finishes budget, and so when it starts to go over, they know exactly where it's been impacted, mm -hmm. so they go to that piece instead of making the others suffer, mm -hmm. you know, because steel cost more than they thought it was going to, or... And the fabric on the furniture doesn't match the decor because it was that much cheaper. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> How do we wind up with gray everything? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm sitting here listening to this and I, and I think we started this conversation around assembling the experts to assist with land search. Yeah. Um, and it's evolved into <laughs> a conversation around uh, cost, budgeting, schedule, uh, schedule construction, execution. I think that's really the, the message here is getting the right teams together early in a collaborative way and allowing us to discover what the owner's goals are, then we can start to share some of the solutions. Things that maybe owners haven't even thought about. And you know, I said earlier on, they don't know what they don't know. The discovery piece is for us as well. We're gonna ask a lot of questions about what the long-term goals are. And if we understand that, we can help together create solutions to meet those needs. So I think a great example of a success story is, is the building we're sitting in right now, which is the, uh, the Messer Corporate Office here in Cincinnati. Tremendous collaboration from beginning to end, engagement by the design team, yeah. continuous budgeting and feedback, all the good ideas on the table from the beginning to the end. I think this is a great example of, of how it should be and can be done. Yeah, it is. And we did have a podcast on that where we talked to Tim Steyerwald. And so, yeah, if you want more information on that, there's actually a podcast about this building because it really was about that integrated process. So. Yeah. Well, we appreciate the opportunity to be here. I think this yeah. has been uh, entertaining and fun to kind of share our expertise <laughs> and talk about the, the process. And, and I'm hopeful that uh, a lot of the clients out there will pick up a few nuggets and probably will hear some things that, that sound familiar and, and, and stories and experiences they've had and be encouraged to sort of follow this process because it, yeah. it really does work. We can build awareness and encourage more people to participate early on. That's right. I agree. Thanks to Brian for hosting. Thank, Thank you. Thank you for joining Trends and Tensions, presented by BHDP. This concludes our discussion with Tom Balonic of Messer Construction and Michael Verdier of BHDP on site selection of a future project. If you appreciate what you've heard, please rate, subscribe, and give us a review. We also invite your suggestions of other architectural interior design and behavior-related topics. I'm Brian Trainer. I hope you'll join us for another episode of Trends and Tensions to see what topics drive design.